What is up, everybody? Welcome to The Stack. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. And on The Stack, we have a lot of comics to talk Ooh. about, so let's jump right into it with The Flash, number one, from DC Comics, written by Cy Spurrier, art by Mike Diodato Jr. This is bringing Wally West back to the forefront with his whole family, giving us something that I don't know that we've ever seen for The Flash, which is a horror inflected, infused take on the Flash. He is dealing with what seems to be eldritch horrors straight out of the Speed Force. I know I'm the big Flash guy on the podcast, but I think How did this get to the number one slot? Yeah, exactly. uh, What I do is I take all the titles, I put them in one of those bingo things, and I spin it around, and then I Uh, pull out the Flash. I keep pulling out stuff until I get the Flash first, and that goes first. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Classic bingo. Classic you bingo. Get, you want the oldest person well, to win. Well, I do think this is a big thing, launching a new version of The Flash, a very different version of The Flash. Curious to hear what you guys thought about this. Pete, take it away. Well, it's funny that you say it's a big thing because it just feels like a Flash number one. Um, uh, and I, I think that the, the cover was very cool. It was like he was like breaking glass. You know what I mean? It was like mm-hmm. an interesting cover. Well, he's finally uh, breaking glass ceiling for redheads, something that we all talk about all the time. Yes. I don't know if as no. a dude you can make that joke, but I appreciate what you're trying to do. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I really love Alex the famously art. redheaded. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the art style, and I was like, oh, great, a new number one. Maybe this will be uh, – you're talking about the speed force. Fuck you. Uh, so, yeah, it so lost wait, me. P- Real quick on that, you hate the Speed Force. Why? Because yeah. it's confusing? Because there's a thing called the Sonic Treadmill or wherever the fuck it is. That's, That's just, not, oh my gosh, so much cursing. That. Cosmic Treadmill. Here's the thing. Uh, if you don't like the Speed Force, Wally spends a lot of time in this book being like, I don't understand what that is. That yeah, because it's you got to try to deal with it and it's such a fucking huge thing all right just... shut up i really like this book the <laughs> i thought this was a very interesting take on the wow. flash i love getting back to wally and his family which is such a great core dynamic that we haven't really visited in a significant way in a while i also love the horror take here it's very i i didn't know why we were getting mike diodato jr on this book because you wouldn't necessarily mm. associate his dark, very line-driven style with the Flash. You associate cheerier, brighter sort of uh, yeah. looks and things. But this yeah. really worked for me, and the place that it goes by the end is very dark with this anti-spoiler. Without killing anybody off, I thought we were going to be like, and a member of the Flash family dies, so that might still be coming. But Something that happens in Flash a lot, where yes. they're just like, he's dead. Oh, no, he's not. But just real quick, if Alex is peeing Pete, who's going to Alex Alex? And I hope to answer that question um, by the end of the podcast. Uh, I agree with you. I really like this as well. I like the way it, it is sort of undercutting the big, bright Flash stuff, while still allowing Wally to be it, to be himself. In a world that is literally in darkening, a world is how you say in it. A, in a world, yeah, in a world that's literally darkening around him, based on the art and sort of what's ha- the plot that happens here. I think the Speed Force as a, ba- a force for bad. The text in the last page is the Speed Force is a force for good. I think flipping that and having uh, that be more of have more of a. Uh, character to it as opposed to just like something like gravity that they're just using and working through, I think is interesting. And I like where we're headed. 
Uh, I yeah, I just like to say the squiggly lines were a lot, um, but uh, you know, if uh, you you like comics where the answer is just run faster, then this is for you. That's absolutely. I don't not, think that's the answer. No, that's not the answer. It's that's always of, the answer with the Flash. He's just gotta run. Faster, yeah, but that's not the idea here. I mean, they're finding interesting riffs, riffs on Gorilla Grodd. They're finding interesting riffs on the Flash. Cool family. last page villain. Okay, reveal. okay, okay. Shouts yeah. to Max Astronomy. Mercury yeah. and Impulse here. Yeah. I love them. And yes, the villain at the end, really bizarre, horrific design. If you like things like the Immortal Hulk, definitely pick this up. Let's kick yeah. it off. Uh, not kick it off. Kick it over to. Let's Ultimate. kick it off again. Because yeah, let's let's that was a little argumentative. Let's restart. Title we're going to talk about. I'm sure people love this one. Ultimate Invasion number four from Marvel, written by Jonathan Hickman, art by Brian Hitch. This is the final issue of this story, which is bringing the Ultimate Universe back. Uh, Here we're getting a setup for a one-shot called Ultimate Universe, which is coming out in November. And then we're going to kick off into a Ultimate Spider-Man title starting next year. We've talked quite a bit here about not being 100% sure what the direction of this book is. And to me, at the end of four issues, this feels like actually a very neat setup for a very different take on the Ultimate Universe. How do you guys feel? Uh, I like the way you're saying that because it definitely landed in in such a sort of clean place, if that makes sense, where it's like, nope, we are just going to do it the way that you would expect us to do it with sort of the way we did it the last time. But I think... Yes. Well, so here, let me let me just talk about spoilers here. The Fair. confusing, a lot of confusing Hickman-esque stuff going on here because we have multiple reads and time yep. travel and Kang, sure is who is confusing. also Howard Stark. I'll try to explain it very simply, so or as simply as humanly possible. So the way that they've set it up is the evil Reed Richards, called the Maker, traveled yep. back to the Ultimate Universe, used a time travel device to remake the Ultimate Universe, to basically make him the ruler of the Ultimate Universe. Along the way, he took a bunch of very powerful beings, including the Hulk and, like, Omega Red and Ilyana Rasputin and other characters like that. And weird split picks. them Very weird picks, but split them into different factions. And as was revealed a couple of issues back, his whole idea was very, like, very much like the Watchmen squid thing of human beings will never band together unless they have an enemy. So every thousand years or so, they rotate around where one of them gets to be the enemy while everybody else is the good guy. In this issue, we get a future version of Tony Stark who has taken on the identity of Kang, has been fighting against the Maker this entire time, And because of the actions of Howard Stark, his father, they're able to get one leg up on the Maker and trap him in his fortress, which is a fortress that exists outside of time. So the setup at the end of this issue that does make this version of the Ultimate Universe a little bit different is the people outside realize, okay, we have two years now until the Maker escapes from this fortress, potentially. Yeah. While he's in there... Possibly thousands of years have passed, and we don't know what's going to come at us at this point. And these factions that he created are like, let's make the most of it and destroy America. So I, that's one side. And on the other side of the Ultimate Universe, you got Tony Stark, who has taken on the identity of Iron Lad, 
a, the Reed Richards from this universe who looks like Dr. Doom. And this big spoiler at the end is they're going to unfreeze Captain America. So they have these heroes on one side, the villains is everybody else attacking them. And they have this ticking time bomb that they set up the entire universe for, where it's not like the ultimate universe is going to go on forever. We know that in two years, comic book time, this all goes to ruin somehow. And I think that's a smart, different way of setting it up. Well, to uh, put a ticking well, clock on it is really cool. And it's an interesting reframing of the word ultimate because it, in here it means like everything is dialed up. The stakes are high constantly, it feels like. Making Tony Stark, Kang, and Iron Lad is an interesting like little steal from the old continuity of the regular Marvel Universe and to, and to sort of combine those two characters in a strange way, especially in light that the MCU is so Kang-focused, we think, mm-hmm. going forward, but with a very different character as Kang, a person as Kang. So I don't know. It definitely doesn't feel like it's at all gesturing toward the MCU with these choices, despite the fact that we're using Kang. But it feels like it's going to be like the regular Marvel Universe just on um, uh, cocaine. Like <laughs> something we talk about a lot on this podcast. Oh, yeah, which cocaine. is weird. Uh, yeah, I just uh, the there's a lot happening, and it's a uh, you know Hickman definitely goes over my head a lot. So this this comic isn't for me. But I was trying to read it and trying to understand. And the part that was confusing to me is why is Reed Richards talking to the maker like he's cool with him when he's clearly a very evil person who is manipulating time and space. They're they're being calculated. Like throughout the book, they know if they make one wrong move, the maker is going to destroy them. And both this Reed Richards, who is dressed like Dr. Doom and Howard Stark, realize they have one chance to stop him here. There's a whole causality loop thing going on that I didn't mention where the time machine that the maker used to remake the ultimate universe was given to him by Howard Stark. And so he needs Howard Stark to create it. There's a lot of stuff going on there um, that either you can pick up on or not. But I think it's it's a lot of calculated moves rather than big superhero fighting is essentially what's going on. Yeah. yeah I mean, chess match, classic Hickman stuff. Hickman classic. loves complicated Reed Richards situations. Exactly. He loves that guy. Why don't we move on to a guy and a gal that you love, Pete? Hackslash, back to yes. school, number one. Back to school on sale, October 18th from Image Comics by Zoe Thorogood. Now, just a note, we only read the first 12 pages of this, so we're going to be basing our spoiler-free review off of that. But this is Zoe Thorogood, who we love the art from. She did Rain. She also did, yeah. um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of her graphic novel. That was fantastic. I'll look it up. That you wrecked. That, uh, I, that you loved. I loved it. I'm completely on, blanking on the name right now. But anyway, this is her taking on the characters created by Tim Seeley and giving them more of a YA bent. I thought even from these 12 pages, I thought this was awesome and channeled perfectly the world that Tim Seeley set up. What'd you guys think? Yeah, I really I loved it. It's kind of like a Batman year one in the fact that we're kind of bringing things back to the start for Hackslash. Uh, this is right uh, when uh, Cassie Hack and Vlad are kind of just starting out together. So 
it's a special time. That's a cool place to kind of start. I really love the art style. It's very unique and cool. So, yeah, I don't want to spoil anything, but I was super excited about this and very happy. And I think that this is an amazing team to have on here. So team I can't wait one. for more. Team yeah, of team one. of one, but you also have one. the team of, you know, that Tim Seeley kind of created. Oh, okay. Uh, nice. The characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the graphic novel is It's Lonely at the Center of the Earth. That's that, what uh, it was is. on yes. la- our last year's best of list that you um, hyped a great deal that I uh, downloaded. Because it's, on your rec. But oh, it's also just exciting to see Cassie and Vlad back together. And just like great art, still keeping some great horror in here, oh, but yeah. taking them back a little bit and and giving them like a, just a whole new place to be and sort of a, a younger, more innocent, like, what am I doing with my life? Which I really like blended with no no pulling back on the horror gas pedal here. This is just a great beginning to this. I can't wait to read more. Yeah, I was just going to add on that note that even though this is being sold as a YA book, it's Zoe Thorogood art, and she draws melty, horrific things in such a beautiful way at the same time that it really comes through here. It's, It's pretty intense. You calling it a YA book is definitely not accurate. It is horrifying. They're straight up. That's how they're selling it. They're like children's heads being cut off here. I mean, it's not why it's like set in that type of maybe emotional world or setting, but the horror of this book is definitely straight up real horror, slicing heads off children and murdered parents. Power Dude, don't spoil everything. Power Girl number one from DC Comics, written by Leah Williams, art by Eduardo Pensica. Power Girl is taking on a new secret identity of Dr. Paige Stetler, and she is, yeah. Uh, doing some Power Girl stuff. Uh, so she has this new <laughs> identity. She's getting reintegrated into the tech world. But, of course, there's some villains coming for her at the same time. What did you think about this new start for Power Girl? Well, I'm excited for it. Um, I think in the right hands, Power Girl can be a, a great uh, superhero. I mean, you know, unfortunately, when you read a lot of comics, there is this kind of thing that happens sometimes where it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I have this new superpower that completely saves the day perfectly for the situation that I'm in that you've never heard of that we're just going to drop here. But other than that, I'm excited for where this uh, story is going to go. And I really love the art. Yeah, uh, it. I feel like Power Girl's gone through a lot of uh, changes changes recent time with the Lazarus uh, world stuff and I I like the reinvention she has a much closer place to the super family and I think we're um, continuing to uh, bring that closer uh, but like I will say the powers the power of punching a hole through dimension I was like isn't this a Marvel character that you just mm-hmm. sort of like Took over. It's weird too because I really like the stuff that Leah Williams and Marguerite Savage were doing, where Power Girl had psychic powers and was doing that, but in people's psyches. I didn't realize she could do that in quote unquote real life as well and do the America Chavez stuff. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Uh, But like you said, Pete, the art is good. Uh, The story is solid. It just seems like a very different start than what I expected off of those previous stories and specials. Invincible Iron Man, number 10 from Marvel, written by Jerry Duke and art by Juan Fergari. This is continuing the story of Emma Frost and Tony Stark working their way towards marriage. 
as they're trying to stop Phalong, one of the villains, along with Orcus, that is destroying, trying to destroy the X-Men, trying to destroy Iron Man. Pete, this is one of your picks of the week. Why yeah, is that? this was a big surprise for me. I was, uh, I get it now. When you bring wow, two, two wait S- a second. Can we clip this out already? Can we already clip this? Uh, P, I get it now. You love the, the X Men now. No, no, no. But what I do enjoy is if you have two assholes and you bring them together. Um, you don't really care if one of them's going to get hurt, but it's fun to watch because like they have this very interesting kind of rom-com setup to this where two people are faking a marriage as a cover, but what if one of them falls in love with the other one? Oh, would that be fun? I think this is such a cool kind of setup to a bigger story, a little kind of rom-com in the middle of it. And I think that's a fun idea to play with. And I think the Dukes is doing an interesting kind of move with these two where you know they're both kind of assholes so who cares if they get hurt but it'd be kind of fun to see if one of them falls for the other why are you nasty why nasty (laughs) can can i just ask uh just to throw it out there what if it was three assholes would it be the same scenario well sure maybe together getting together like getting together and it wouldn't matter if one of them got hurt you'd be kind of enjoying it anyway are you are you talking about us or were the three assholes (laughs) Is it us? Are we? <laughs> really feeling seen here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think I like these characters, and honestly, I like them together. I want to see this. I want to give them the full bat cat treatment. Let's ride. Let's go. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm having a fun time with them, and I and I didn't think I would. Um, uh, I don't particularly, uh, you know. Um, I mean, Tony Stark is great. I love him in the movies, but uh, in the comic books, sometimes he can kind of be a little too douchey for me. So I uh, I think this is a very interesting combination, and I'm really kind of, uh, I'm into it, and I didn't think I would be. So this it finally clicked in this issue, and I'm having a great time, and I want more. And great Deadpool appearance as well, with the mustache oh, yeah. and everything. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah, yeah, very fun. fun. Let's move to another advanced review. A Haunted Girl, number one. This one is on sale October 11th from Image Comics. It's written by Ethan Sachs and Naomi Sachs. Art by Marco Uh Lorenzana. This is a book where a girl went through some sort of trauma. We don't find out too much about it, um, though we do get some hints and teases of it throughout the book. She is seeing some sort of horrific, I would say, J-horror-type creatures who are attaching Attacking some, her. Some um, are they we real? Get a little are they bit not? Of that. I don't want to spoil whether they are, but it's an image comics book, so you can probably figure out where this thing is going by the end here. Uh, what did you guys think about this kickoff issue? Scary. I bet this is a scary, uh, over the scary line for Pete with some of the images we got here. And like we're saying, it's not out for a little bit, so maybe we don't want to spoil as much, but uh, really pressing on the there's trouble uh, brewing. But then some much larger mythological understanding here. Yeah, it definitely walks the line for me as far as too scary. But I did enjoy this. And I also think the art did a great job of making it accessible. It has like a, a hint of anime to the style, which I really appreciate. A hint. Um, yeah, a hint. Uh, some of the stuff Super was. Super hint bananas. Uh, the, some of the stuff was really freaking me out. But I also was enjoying it as well. So uh, this did a great job for me, and uh, I'm excited for more. Really good creature design in this book yes. in particular is what I would call out. I really enjoyed that. And 
it's going to be a little while, but I'm I'm interested to read the second one. And I think that yeah. is obviously the mark of a good first issue. Let's move to another spooky, scary one. Stuff of Nightmares, Red Murder, oh, number one for Boob Studios, written by R.L. Stein, Mr. Goosebumps himself, art by Adam Mr. Gorham. Goosebumps. Mr. Goosebumps. I met him once. He was the nicest man. We hung out. Very nice man. He he sort of palled around in the comedy community for a while here oh, in yeah. New York. Uh, he did some monologues at ASCAD, I believe, and, and would show up and, and be around some shows. It was wild. Yeah. So this is about a superhero called the Red Murder who is powered by drinking blood. It gets tied into some real life murders that entangle the creator of the comic book. Um, what do you guys think about this story? Well, I think it's interesting because it's about a main character whose name is Alex, who has a quote unquote brother and uh, is uh, really creepy. And so it reminded me of somebody that I know. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of a Fight Club Ty- Tyler Durden situation here. And uh, yeah, I'll be in. It's really fucked up and very dark, but uh, also uh, really cool. Now we got Pete Alexing Alex. The real question is who will Justin the Justin? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was, uh, I really like the art in this. I mm-hmm. thought the uh, sort of the heightened panels where Red Murder was doing the murdering was really cool. Sort of the frenetic action was well yeah. conveyed. Uh, some fun uh, reveals here. It bounces back and forth a lot where I was like, uh, which we were moving very quickly through a lot of things. Yeah. And I yeah, thought it was maybe. Based. One step too complicated before we got the reveal. I I thought it could have slowed down and really let us savor a little bit more, but some good axe-wielding, blood-drinking horror. Batman, <laughs> Catwoman, the Gotham War, Red Hood, number one from DC Comics, written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Nicola Sismesja. This is, of course, spinning off of the Gotham War storyline. Red Hood is on the side of Catwoman, but we find he has an agenda here specifically to find the Joker and kill him while he is training some thieves for Catwoman at the same time. Pete, again, this is one of your favorite issues. Why that? Well, I tell you what, I, I, this whole kind of, uh, dividing Gotham, this, which team are you on, bat or cat is very interesting. And, uh, I think it's kind of cool to see play out throughout these different books. Um, but man, Jason, uh, really fucking up out there in Gotham. You know what I mean? Like Catwoman really kind of saved his ass there and, uh. Uh, you had an amazing kind of uh, a scarecrow appearance in this as well. I, I'm impressed with the layers that are going on in this book and the way they're balancing it in a very cool way. Um, I'm I, I'm really liking how they're kind of taking their time with this event and we're kind of getting little pieces of it as we go. I'm having a good time with this. This is really good. Art is fantastic. Sounds like Batter Cat. You choose Cat, Pete. Ooh. You, oh, you're a cat guy, Ooh. so of course you're going to choose Cat. Ooh, you yeah, I don't know, man. I might be you might be right, but you hate to go against the bat, you know what I mean? Well, sometimes you choose cat. I mean Alex, you do. Yeah, I know you Alex, you know what ha- Alex chooses the bat. Yeah, Alex is right. the bat guy, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Bats are like cats, but they can also fly, which is very cool. Bats uh, are not like cats. I don't think they're like cats at all. <laughs> name one thing that bats name, are like cats. Name one thing that's different about them, other than the wings. Mm. Uh, the wings, the fur. Uh, I guess the sonar, oh, the fur. Yeah. I'll give you maybe ears, depending on cats. Don't have cats have sonar, right? 
No, uh, no. so that not technically they purr. That's sort of a sonic yeah, assault. And, and it bounces off of it. They're blind. Anyway, we don't need to get into this too much. <laughs> Justin, what did you think about cats famously blind? Uh, <laughs> I thought the art in this was fantastic. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Uh, Red Hood is a character for me where I I feel like he's so performatively being edgy and. I don't like that as a character. I want to cut through that because what you see happens yourself in that because you're no. a performer guy and you, you think it's too uh, much. I'm very uh, – I'm not performatively edgy. Uh, I'm not really all uh, that edgy. I mean, aren't you though a little bit? I mean. Wait, in what way am I performing the edge? <laughs> I don't know. I, and I just feel like at the end of the day, he always ends up being like a Robin. And in, in this book is a lot of him being like, I'm bad. But then at the end, a uh, very light spoiler – it, what he's been doing goes wrong, and he's going to have to sort of feel the guilt and comeuppance for that afterwards. I like him chasing the Joker, but it's like the dog that is chasing the car. He can't ever catch him. So. Yeah, but I would you guys, I thought it was really cool when a cat did the old slip in the note in the pocket after she called, after he was like, oh, what's up, big pocket? You know what I mean? I thought that was pretty cool, the cat to do yeah. that move. Yeah. Cool. Good. Good book. Miracle Man: The Silver Good Age. Good note. <laughs> Miracle Man: The Silver Age, number six from Marvel, written by Neil Gaiman, art by Mark Buckingham. And this issue, Dicky Dauntless, origin finally revealed, and it's darker than you could have ever imagined. Yeah, we are finding well, out about Kid Miracle imagined. Man. I mean, okay. Do you right. imagine this? <laughs> no, I'm just saying it. You know. Just imagine Stanley invents child abuse. (laughs) Something like that. Anyway, it's very dark. It's very uh, real and purposefully so contrasting with the more wild, over-the-top superhero elements of Miracle Man. I think in this issue, we really finally get a sense of why we're doing this, like why the Silver Age is happening and what the purpose of this story is. I'm very interested to see how they wrap it up next issue. And of course, Mark Buckingham's art always pitch perfect. Yeah, I agree. It's, oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. You, you go, you go. Yeah, I was just going to say, I really agree. I, I really think that in this issue, things really start clicking, you know, like we're getting away from the older material and starting our own story with what's going on. So I think this is really starting to kind of get going in a great way. I felt I could really feel the pickup in this issue, uh, especially the way it starts where the panels kind of zoom in and get really close. I think that was such a cool move by the artist. And uh, yeah, I love the old school kind of art feel that's going on here. I'm really starting to enjoy this before I was kind of like, all right, what are we doing? Uh, But now I feel like it's really, uh, really picking up. Well, it's interesting that there's a a Neil Gaiman book that's been on the stands, you know, a bunch for the past six months that is very underheralded. I feel like this book is not often talked about unless I'm missing some corner of the Internet that's really getting into it. Also, a book that is being very coy with its story until now revealing a lot of what it's about. A very not a very Neil Gaiman thing to do. Also, a story that's like spectacularly dark. A, yeah. a thing that Neil Gaiman also doesn't do. So I think this is a really interesting series. I wish it was people were talking about it more. It's a dark exploration of sort of like a coming of age story, but in a way that is like at once sort of bringing you into certain moments, but at the same time being like, here's something truly horrifying for you to witness. I'm really curious where it's going to land next issue, because that to me is an absolute up in the air question. Yeah. 
Let's talk about another advanced one. Doctor Who, Once Upon Let's a Time. Let's kick off this stack with a book for Alex. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Who, Once Upon a Time yeah. Lord. Oh, just pulled this out of the old bingo ball. Doctor Who, yeah. Once Upon a Time Lord, number one, on sale October 31st. Oh, woo, from Titan Comics, written by Dan Slott, art by Christopher hey, Johnson, Matthew Dow Smith. And Mike Collins, this is Dan Slott, maybe the biggest Doctor Who fan in the entire universe, commensurate comic book writer, finally getting to write a Doctor Who story after years and years of talking about the show incessantly. This is focusing in on the David Tennant version of the Doctor, as well as the Martha Jones companion. And the story here is that Martha Jones gets kidnapped by these creatures called the Pyromaths, and they force her to do kind of a Scheherazade, tell a bunch of stories about the Doctor. Um, I know you guys are not the biggest Doctor Who fans, so I am... Well, I'm curious to hear what you think anyway, but just speaking as the Doctor Who fan on the podcast... I actually thought even stronger than as a Doctor Who story, this is a great Dan Slott story. This is a like classic yes. Dan Slott knows literally everything about this continuity, knows how to make it work in a way that is accessible for a new reader. At least that's what I felt and draws you in with a tightly woven tale. And then there's another one that is very fun and winky as well. But it's really the main story I thought was Absolutely phenomenal, and if it was on TV, it would stand up with some of the best episodes of Doctor Who. Uh, quote that and send it to Dan Slott on Twitter right now because he will love to hear that. I I, th- I thought this was a good story. Don't spoil it, man. We can't, we can't spoil uh, it. <laughs> I'm not okay. Uh, I'm not. I thought this was a good story. Why? What is my barrier to entry with Doctor Who, though, Alex? Can you tell me because I like. So many comics that are all over the map, but there's something about this that I just it, it bothers it, uh, the Doctor Who anything TV mm-hmm. and no no shame to any Doctor Who fans because I want to like this, but there's something that is a barrier to me. Have you watched episodes and it's the same sort of thing? Or no, I've watched some of the like I grew up uh, on the Canadian border watching Canadian TV and I watched a lot of old like, you know, 80s, 90s Doctor Who. And I was like, whoa, this shit's scary. (laughs) Uh, So I've seen that. I haven't watched a ton. I've seen like, you know, a handful of episodes of the newer stuff. It might be the casual nature of it is what I would throw out there. Something like. You know, it, it, this is a crazy thing to say on our comic book review show, but every almost every episode of Doctor Who, you go out and you're like, well, he's going to win. You, you, like, you know the right. structure of it. It's almost the same structure where he's like, let's go out on an adventure companion. And just like, crikey, Doctor, what are we going to do next? The Doctor's like, look at this crazy planet. We're just going to have a nice time here. Oops, there's aliens who want to kill everybody. And then he stands up to them and is like, I'm the Doctor, and you're going to stop this because I'm the Doctor. And they're like, well, nothing we can do. And then that's the end of the adventure. Like, that's 100% hmm. boiled down. But there might be something in terms of that repetitiveness that mm. I don't know. I don't know why that shouldn't work on TV with this property when that's what a lot of comics are based on. But it might be that partially, potentially. Yeah, I, that that tracks for me. And maybe it's like it, nothing ever seems to really bother the Doctor, so everything feels very medium mm-hmm. to the Doctor. And, and this is very much like that. But I would urge anybody who has that feeling. Go back, watch the rebooted series, because the first one, the first season with Christopher Eccleston um, and Billy Piper is good. I really like Christopher Eccleston. It's fun, but it definitely has that feeling. 
it's really with the when they bring in David Tennant in the second season where you get that feeling like he channels so well the idea like, oh, no, maybe the doctor's going to lose. Oh, wait, he did. You know, and it goes <laughs> to that. But like he brings this really intense feeling and energy to it that feels very different. I think that continues really well through the Matt Smith years as well. So, you know, it's the sort of show there's not there's continuity, but there's not a ton of continuity. So you kind of can jump in wherever. Um, but starting with the new stuff, it feels very different and it feels like that's what they're going to probably do when Nishuti Gatwa takes over next year, I want to say, uh, where they're trying to try to give it this clean start and make it feel like more of a global high energy property. Pete? Uh, yeah, I love this. I surprisingly love this, uh, uh, doctor who, uh, misses me a lot of the time. I thought yeah, I don't get it. I've tried to watch it. I've tried to read other comics with a lot of time. I don't enjoy it. But um, this was, uh, I found, very enjoyable. It got a little meta at times, which usually turns me away. But I, I thought it was uh, really kind of impressive. And uh, with, I love the art and uh, the storytelling. So it was surprising that, uh, and well, not surprising really that Dan Slott, because Dan Slott's one, uh, a huge fan. But I think he did an amazing job. I hope he gets to write some more. Yeah. I, I love getting to see him. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say about somebody who's written, you know, some of the most lauded runs on Spider-Man and other things, but like getting him to really shoot his shot here and make it, I thought was very nice. Let's move on to talk about a pair of Star Trek books while we're talking about yeah, licensed here properties. here we go. Let's get into some days of blood. Come on. Mm-hmm. We got Star wow. Trek number 12 from IDW written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, art by Angel Unzueta, and Star Trek Day of Blood, Shax's Best Day, number one from IDW written by Ryan North, art by Derek Charm. These are basically total opposites, even though they take place both in the Day of Blood storyline. Star Trek 12 is wrapping up the main storyline, and Shax's best day is focusing on Shax, who is a character from Lower Decks who has been included relatively seriously both in the Star Trek title, the main title, and this Day of Blood crossover. But here, it's Ryan North and Derek Charm very much getting back to the humor of Lower Decks. So you got these two very different things. What'd you guys think about them? Well, I liked the uh, the second one a lot better uh, just because in the first one, in Star Trek 12, this is number five of five of Day of Blood. And, uh, you know, we've been talking before about, all right, give me the blood, give me the blood, because they've been sitting around talking a lot. And we don't. It still doesn't give us much in here at all. Give me the uh, blood. Give me the uh, blood. So uh, that that part was a little disappointing, but uh, it's still a great issue. The second one, though, is what I've been wanting from Day of Blood. I mean, you've got head lopping. you got arm lopping. There's so much blood and guts all over this piece. But they do do a nice kind of cartoonish art, so it doesn't feel as gory, which is a fun, hilarious choice. But uh, it was just... You know, the Star Trek, I want, it's called Day of Blood, and they don't really do that. So it's a little missed opportunity, or at least mislabeled, I would think. And this one does a great job of really leaning into that and having some fun. So I appreciated it. It's very funny that you've been waiting in Day of Blood for the, like, light comedy Lower Decks uh, <laughs> No, I've been take. waiting for blood and a giant massacre or a giant fight because it's called... Day of Blood, and then they don't deliver on that at all. So uh, if it takes a kind of jokey thing to give it to me, then great. Well, you should read it, and there's a little note in the bottom that you have to add your own blood. 
Oh. BYOB. So, like, if you add your own blood, you think you'd really enjoy it. Blood more. your own blood? Blood your own blood. And, yep. uh, you know, as we all know, Alex likes to drink blood like a wine. That's right. I do. He's a blood red boy murder. and red a murder. Uh, red murder guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Star Trek 12, though, and, like, I thought uh, Shax's best day was really fun. Uh, sort of what you expect, uh, Pete. It's a very Pete idea here. But, man, I thought Star Trek 12 was great. Really just a perfect bookend back to the first issue of this series, even beyond the Day of Blood crossover, where it justifies every character's appearance here. When this first came out, we were like, wow, they pulled together like the ultimate Avengers of from the Star Trek world, pulling all these baller characters together on one ship. And in this book, we just get a great cold open that just hits all of them in an awesome way. A beautiful scene between Worf and Alexander. Like, I, I really agree with you, but it doesn't bother you that it's called Day of Blood and they don't deliver on that at all? Like, it's There's a great bl- story. And if it would have been named anything else, I would have been so in love with it. Because as you're saying, it does, it sets things up and then delivers. But you labeled something Day of Blood and there is none. I mean, that's fucking be, ridiculous. It should be called Day of Good Storytelling. Yes, <laughs> or, you know, whatever, I'll, anything else. Can I just say something Very literally here? taking the... Can I say something nice. here? Yes. I agree with Pete. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I know. What? I had the same reaction reading this. Where Star Trek 12, I was like, well, that's a lot of talking and standing around and figuring out stuff through Deus Ex Machina. And then I read Shax's Best Day, and I was like, yeah, day of blood. <laughs> I don't know what's happening to me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> now, Pete is peeing. And Alex is peeing, and where am I in this? Now I'm yeah. lost. Do I, I have know. to be Alex and Pete? I don't know. you got to be everybody, man. Uh, you're the Unstoppable Just, Doom Patrol of this podcast, and we're we going to talk about Unstoppable Doom Patrol number six from DC Comics, written by Dennis Culver, art by Chris Burnham. If, so the first arc of this book had this really sharp focus. Each issue was yeah. focused on a different yeah. character and introducing them, giving them adventures. This is like, nope. No, no, it's Doom Patrol versus the Legion. Not, they're not called the Legion of Doom. I'm forgetting what the oh. Doom Patrol's enemies are called. But it throws absolutely everything in there immediately. It goes buck wild from pretty much the first page. Uh, yeah. What do you guys think about this one? This is a blast. This is just a ton of fun. It feels like just a, a great episode of the TV show. I mean, I still hear the voices uh, uh, from the actors when I read it, which is really fun. But I think this is just a really fun adventure, and it feels like the people making this are having a blast. It's uh, uh, and the the art is super type and M's. Yeah, the Chris Burnham art is great. There's a super horrifying full page corpse in yeah. this one. <laughs> Um, in this uh, story, uh, hopefully called Day of Corpse, because that's definitely what we get. <laughs> but this, you're right. This is like the full kitchen sink. It's interesting yeah. to me that this is a seven, this is issue six of a seven issue limited series, mm-hmm. because it does feel like it's just revving up. Like it feels like it wants to go hard in this direction somewhere new. And I, I don't know how this book is selling or anything, but like, it's fun. It takes the weirdness of the Doom Patrol and yes. amps it up with an Avengers-type pace and storytelling where the fight – it's just one big fight and then chaos and then so much so the characters are like, eh, we fucked up only bringing a couple characters to this fight because yeah. all the other ones are fighting over there. It was like, wow, what a funny take. 
so like I, I guess I just want to see more of this, even though it's not at all what I expected when this first came out. Uh, but like Pete said, I think this is right across the plate. If you're loving the TV show, it plays yeah. into a lot of those characters there. So great stuff. And like both of you guys, even said, Kipling, even Kipling. Kipling, Kipling shows up. We get Dorothy. We get yeah, uh, Dorothy. Jesus. Candleman shows up in a certain sense as well. So there you go. Miss Marvel, the new mutant number two for Marvel, written by Iman Vellani. TV's Miss Marvel herself and Sabir Persada, a writer of TV's Miss Marvel herself. Art by Carlos Gomez and Adam Gorham. Again, busy artist. In Gorham. this issue, Miss Marvel is dealing with the fallout of the fact that she accidentally wore her X-Men uniform when she was going on a mission at Empire State University. Orcus is coming after her. She's dealing with the ramifications of all of these things, as well as trying to figure out why she's having weird recurring dreams, which leads to an even weirder scenario. I think we were all very pleasantly surprised by the first issue of this. How do you think the second issue held up? It's interesting that this book is a little bit driving Fall of X. Like, it's sort of the book where everything comes to hang out. Like, it's where some Orcus stuff happens. It's where uh, we get the quote-unquote new team of X-Men with Sink and Talon and all those folks. A lot of their action happens in this book. And Tony Stark and White Queen hanging out. Uh, So, like, for this to be the grounds where all that happens, at the same time, it's pushing... A lot of Ms. Marvel stuff with the dream stuff and this Doctor Strange Silver Surfer amalgam and her trying to find her place in the Marvel Universe. It's a lot going on. I do have a question, though. Um, White Queen, in most of her time right now, she's in disguise as Hazel Kendall. But in this book, she decides to just relax, put on her corset and very tight pants and cape to mm-hmm. hang out in a room for a little bit. Do you think she's relaxing into her, uh, her work clothes here or mm-hmm. what's happening? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have different moods. You put on different outfits, get off her back. Anyways, I think this is really enjoyable. I like uh, the friends that we're having on this with uh, the fun dynamic. Her at school is fun. The, you know, kind of will they, won't they with Bruno is really awesome. Pete Uh, loves Follow X. Pete loves Follow X. I I just wish that, like... Two for two, guy. I, I just think that... You know, Emma Frost giving someone advice or a lecture, I was a little like, mm, eh, mm, boo. But uh, I really think that this is uh, a lot of fun and great art, and uh, I, I'm excited to see how this is all going to unfold. It was kind of funny where it was just like, hey, did you hear that uh, Iron Man and Emma Frost are getting married? No, we should go swing by and say hello. I was like, oh, my God, that seems like such a funny, weird uh, thing to do in a comic book. But... I thought it was cool. Firepower, number 27 from Image Comics, written by Robert Kirkman, art by Chris Samney. In this issue, we have our main characters trying to train to use their firepower to fight back against the dragon who is slowly destroying the world. Pete, I know you've been following this title all along. What did you think about this issue? I mean, it just what a duo. You got Kirkman and Samney together. I mean, uh, just absolutely fantastic. I love a good fireball training session. You know what I mean? A little Szechuan mm. do. It's great for everybody. Um, mm. I, I love the kind of villain check-in we get this. And then the, you know, of course, the dragons destroying the world. I'm a huge fan of. But uh, uh, the art is super tight. Bananas. Thank you, Chris Samney. The art is excellent. I'm... 
I have not been following this, and the fact that this is issue twenty-seven, this feels like issue three to me. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what's happened. It's a good jumping all. on point. Do yeah. you know what this book is like? Chris Samney, gorgeous art, always like Robert Kirkwood's writing, but this is very much in the Robert Kirkwood style of like, you go to the deli counter and you're like. Hey, could you slice me up some gouda or something? And they're like, Yeah, sure. Here, have a piece while you're waiting. And you're like, Oh, this is really good. Can I get some more? And they're like, Next month. Come, come. <laughs> you just get one little cheese square put in your mouth from like someone's like naked fingers. Is what you're saying? Yeah, that's how comics like work. You got to wait a month, man. Robert Kirkman's putting enough. his There's naked fingers story here. Is in your what mouth. I'm saying. Well, how it's is a hangout book? story. It feels like a hangout book where each yeah. issue, like a couple things happen. It's like certain arcs of the wa- of Walking Dead back in the day, where it's like we're just truly hanging out with all these characters, and we're slowly building toward like a series of things. But in the meantime, we're just hanging out. Yeah. Well, differences of opinion. The first time that's <laughs> happened on this podcast. The Oddly Pedestrian Life of Christopher Chaos, number four from Dark Horse Comics, written by Tate Bromble, art by Isaac Goodhart. This is. I felt like finally really coming together story-wise in this issue. We're getting our main characters are all in full effect. They're all a bunch of different monsters. We got a vampire boy. We got a Frankenstein boy. We got a Dr. Frankenstein boy, I guess. Um, We've got a maybe a wolfman somewhere, I assume. We've got a bunch of Van Helsings who are chasing them down. This is very fun, and I really like the clean lines of the art. Yeah, I I agree. This is a fun ass adventure here. This is like a, a cool group of kids who a fun ass uh, venture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think this is very exciting to read, and I I, I love the art style. Uh, same. I think having like a your classic monsters book yeah. from the monster side like a mod is really squad situation. You yeah, know what I mean exactly where you're following them. They're sort of a reluctant teen team. And they're up against a truly very powerful group of sort of religious killers, I think is a fun dynamic. Uh, I wonder how it works with um, James Tynan sort of pitched this, it seems like, but Tate Brombaugh and Isaac Goodhart really took over. How I, I'm curious, every time here, I see this at the my, beginning, I Here's my assumption based on absolutely nothing. I think this is literally based on no information whatsoever, but I think in the same way that Scott Snyder was like, Hey, James Tynan, I'm going to mentor you a little bit and then send you off like a beautiful little bird on your own. I think uh, James Tynan has done the same thing for Tate Bromble. That's what it feels like Mm. from all the, something is killing the children associated stuff. that Tate Bromble has been on and some other things. So my guess here is that James was like, yeah, I got this idea, but I'm very busy why don't we work on fleshing it out and then you take it and you run with it? That's a very cool thing to do. I mean, if uh, it's true, I don't know. This is my fan fiction about James Tide of the Fourth Team. Oh, no, please don't start rumors. I, I do think, though, to get back to something uh, Zalbatron was saying, is that uh, this does really start to click in this issue where uh, uh, it really kind of picks up and things kind of align. Also, like, you get that kind of past that annoying thing where they're stopped. The characters stop fighting each other and decide to work together. So that's always a big help. When they st- stop fighting and start being real. I was the act that bar- my brain is also programmed in the early nine mid to 90s MTV brain. So that's us. The Penguin, number two from DC Comics, written by Tom King, art by Rafael De La Torre. In this issue, we're once again tying back to the Killing Time series, this time to bring back the character of the help. 
The help at the end of the Killing Time series was kind of one of the big winners there and ended up retiring and getting his own mansion. Penguin don't like that. Penguin don't play that, to use another 90s phrase. Nice. Yeah, wow. very nice. Like we all know what you're, yeah, everyone listening definitely knows what you're talking about. Yeah, Penguin nasty. Well, <laughs> yeah, Penguin goes really way too far and gets way too dark in this one. This is like, I kept looking at this like, is this a black label? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I got to say versus the first issue where Penguin and Batman both had their arms sliced open and died in the bat plane. This is a dark issue. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Good point. Yeah, definitely a good call. I, I do think there is like that violence and then there is like the penguin showing you how much of a villain he is and saying like you can evolve you piece of shit you were my butler and you will always be a fucking butler and I'll murder everyone you've ever loved just to prove that to you and I was like god damn bro uh, sometimes I like rooting for the penguin uh, but in this it's what? not hard in, in to, what, in what cases are you like Go penguin! I do that <laughs> every time I go to the zoo. Yeah, there we go. Um, it is crazy <laughs> that um, the penguin murdered the help's help so that he could get the help to help him because he needs help. It doesn't was literally this point of this story. <laughs> I just don't understand how murdering everybody make like okay, all right, I'll work for you. It, you know, you should be like fucking killing. No, me, but I think there's an argument to be made here that. The penguin is right that the truest what? version of no, but that the, the truest version of the help is when he is not being a butler, but when he is helping people, when he's being a, the most powerful assassin on the planet, the person who can kill and destroy anybody. The way that he was set up in Killing Time, penguin comes in and is basically like you got in, you got soft, you went well, soft, bro. And yeah, but that's a different argument, completely, you know, saying somebody is soft or whatever. But it's he's trying to say he's evolved, he's past this, he's trying to move on from this life and enjoy, you know, where he is now. And the penguin's like, no, you know, against his will, well, which is. Uh, but the really help, fun. the help ends up rejoining the penguin. So, like, there is uh, something makes him do that. And I think the penguin's point and the harsh lesson that he's teaching him is like. Hey, you're a weapon. You need to be used in a battle. So you need someone to wield you, and I will wield you. Otherwise, That's a you're nicer just... way to say it than how the penguin is saying this, though. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a, a sort of the Shakespeare of this uh, comic book universe in a lot of ways. You call yourself uh, old Billy Shakespeare over here? <laughs> no, uh, but I'm saying while the help, Penguin's saying to help, like, you've just put yourself, you're a weapon on a shelf here. You're training for no reason. You, you have all these the people helping you. Like, it doesn't mean anything. And so I think it is sort of that old soldier energy to play into some of the conversations we've been having about Tom King on our uh, Patreon Slack. There, This is some of that, like, militaristic uh, philosophy folded into the work here. Well, it's definitely Marvel Unleashed, number two from Marvel. That didn't work. Written by nope. Kyle Starks, <laughs> art by Jesus Herbaz. Let's kick it off with Marvel Unleashed, number two. This podcast <laughs> is just kicking B5, off. five Marvel Unleashed. Here we go. This is all of the animal characters in the Marvel Universe teaming up together in a surprisingly intense situation as they fight against Blackheart and all of hell. Um, there are some badass moments in here involving yes. Throg and What an actress by Throg. Come on. Love Bats, Doctor Strange's Ghost Dog. Yeah. Very fun book. But also, 
doing a really good job of doing that thing where it's not like, eh, pet Avengers, that's silly. Let's have a good time. This is like, no, no, it's silly, but also we can be intense at the same time. It's very funny. They're like, when's Throg getting here? He's a badass. And it's like, he's a he just has a tiny hammer. Oh, how right? dare you? He is a badass and proves it in this issue. But like, how many shards of Mjolnir are there out there? Like, can any animal grab one? There are so many Lokis. How oh, many animal? If you just pick up a little shard, is there a mosquito Thor Dude, who's flying be, around with this even worthy, smaller? Bro, not everybody can pick up that. Anyways, you tell me, this is the, how did this frog prove that he was the most worthy? He probably shared some flies with some other people and really, you know, <laughs> opened up his lily pad to uh, others. Yo, that's the story I want to see. Throg, that's right? story don't I come for see. Throg. Anyway, I thought this was just a blast. Uh, you know, uh, Alex is right where there is layers to this. It's not just silly fun. There's also a lot of other things going on, which Serious is really Im- Im- important that you're able to kind of balance all this madness, which is really impressive as a writer and artist. But I think this is just a blast. I think they did a great job of taking an idea and then also heightening it to make it very enjoyable for readers. So, uh, and if you're a fan of Throg, you got to pick up this fucking issue, man. Yeah, or if you're a fan of any frogs, no matter what type of hammers Ah. they have, magic or otherwise, but they put put a frog under the regular hammer and see they can do some good stuff too. (laughs) I look forward to Pete Pete taking over the prequel series of Throg, where he proves how worthy he is by sharing his pad with some other frogs. That would be great. That's a fun Marvel. I hope you're listening. Pete LePage writes that. Give me a shot. Come out. There actually is an origin there where the frog proves himself worthy, but we don't need to get into it. That's right. What, ha- what happens in it? What it's happens too in it? complicated. What's the furthest place from here? Number 14 from Image Comics, written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Tyler Boss. In this issue, our main pregnant character ends up in a spooky Halloween town. That's the best way of describing it, I think. I'm so stressed out. You know, I mean, the pregnancy and the past, it just... The stress level of this book was just too much for me. This is an amazing book. The art's unbelievable, but man, this the stress of someone what? being pregnant and then going through all this other stuff is just too much for What's me. What's stressful to you about a pregnant lady being put into a Bugs Bunny style soup? <laughs> nothing, After nothing to uh, me. That's tripping balls off some strange candy. Foods. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was like, that's don't what, eat that. You know, we've talked a lot about this book, and I think a lot of people talk about, like, what is that exactly happening here? This book has a lot of, like, vibes driving this story. Right, But right. really, I think it it is tension and dread that is the ongoing thing here. And we just find – I love that as a spine for a story. I feel like you don't see that very often. And then that allows them to add anything in as, like, the weird – or odd specific that our characters slide through. And it's Sid going, being passed off from two different post-apocalyptic gangs that are like obsessed with mass. It's all kids. And then in the end though, we're sort of winnowing down. We're just with Sid now and we're getting to some more deeper mythological things for the book. I just think this is like such a slow play, but worth every issue. I like where, where we're going. Creed, the next round, number four from Boob Studios, written by Latoya Morgan and Jay Jamison, art by Paris Aline, Leah Caballero, and Wilton Santos. This is the final issue of the story that goes to the far future of Creed and shows what happens when Creed's daughter fights uh, some other people. 
including robots and stuff. Pete, take it away. Oh, yeah, this is a lot of fun, man. This really extends the kind of Creed universe that has started with the movies and then kind of gone into comic book form, which is cool. Uh, This idea that uh, Creed's daughter is, uh, you know, trying to make her own name and uh, and fight. And uh, I really like the uh, use of not only kind of like the struggle with the Creed name, but then also with their skills. Uh, and it's also cool, the, the, you know, the sign language and stuff in here, uh, great use. I think this is just a fun extension of, uh, something that's already fantastic. So yeah, I'm having a blast with this. You almost got pulled into the LePage boxing franchise, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough business. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was a rock'em sock'em boxing mostly, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like hungry hippos, but a little different. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, I like this book actually. It's so strange that it was also built around a plot of a business disagreement about robot fighters <laughs> between the Creed family, and I was like, "Oh, what a weird side plot that comes to bear here." But I found myself caught, despite like I'm not like the biggest. I like the Creed movies, but I'm not like I love Creed. Yeah, this really. Brought me in over the course of the the four issues. I think what really comes out here is that Michael B. Jordan loves anime, something that he was not so secret about in terms of directing Creed Mm 3. And this starts to lead into that where you could see a thing where like they do create the next round part two and suddenly they're in mecha suits and fighting each other. And it's a whole Voltron style thing. We'll see where it goes. Action yeah. Comics 1057 from DC Comics, written by Philip Kenny Johnson, Dan yeah. Jurgens, and Magdalene Visaggio. Art by Rafa Sandoval, Lee Weeks, and Matthew Clark. We're getting two backup stories here, but in the main story, we're focusing in on Blue Earth, which is this organization that hates aliens, tries to get rid of them. Shades of seasons of Supergirl, I would say, that we're playing with here. Mm. But... It uh, comes back to haunt Superman in a big way. What do you guys think about this one? All right, man, I love this. I really love the way it started as well with the kind of construction worker out on a beam sitting there, uh, sitting there with Superman. Just really gets you, gets you in the feels. I also yeah. love the uh, giant uh, battle and uh, it has amazing art. Um, I also love the art style and the backup story as well. The kind of uh, cool uh, style that that does. So, yeah, I think this is a great package. I agree. The way this story kicks off with uh, just a couple pages of Superman being everyday super, it's just such – it's like signature Philip Kennedy Johnson and just such care with the story – and then the main thrust of the fir- the first story in the book is a Clark Kent story that's really well told. You feel the stress and the uh, big future villain story that we're getting here. And then the Dan Jurgens Lee Week story in the back has been great with John Kent in sort of a lost story about how yeah. before he got aged up and what it was like for him when he went on a space adventure that was problematic across the board. And then sort of a a Connor Kent Superboy struggling to find his place on the heels of the Superboy miniseries. I felt like this story actually did a better job of crystallizing these ideas and showing just like a kid who is not feeling comfortable, feels like he's always filling in other people's much larger boots, uh, trying to have a relationship. It's not working. Just like a difficulty finding an identity. And I, I thought... It was really well done. 
Two quick things I wanted to call out before we moved on. I really loved artistically how Rafa Sandoval depicted almost the Daredevil-style human lie detector test that Superman was doing, where you get this cross-section of the person's skeleton as he's like lying, lying, lying. Very cool. Uh, I thought that was a very neat visual. And the other thing, I loved bringing back... Clark Kent news anchor for television, something that I don't think we've done since like the 80s or something like that. Like they just ignored the fact that the Daily Planet has a TV station at the same time. So casually dropping that in there as somebody who uh, my dad had this collection of or probably still has it, this collection of Superman comics from every decade. And I loved reading that over and over. And there were three or four issues where he was hosting TV shows. He was an anchor on air when suddenly like news anchors and news exploded in a really big way in the eighties. And I, I sparked back to that immediately when I was reading that. So it was a very fun memory. Yeah. Pinstripe suit. Yeah. Is uh, is your dad got them all bagged and boarded? Like, or no, no, no. It was like a, it was a hardcover volume of Superman throughout the years, Ooh. and so it had like three issues from it had like uh, two or three issues from like the thirties, forties, fifties, etc. It was very and cool. today and today, yeah. Uh, had, st- but had I had a bunch I, of I, Van Halen I, in it as well. I don't know. Oh, oh nice. sick! Just <laughs> just a sweet track in between. <laughs> I think comics you're supposed to throw away after you read them. They're single use. Oh, how dare you! Don't throw away art, man. <laughs> They're like K cups, right? Yeah, exactly. You just uh, squeeze out a little bit of, of a caffeine hit, and then that goes right in the trash. Gene Gray, number two from Marvel, written by Louise Simonson, art by Bernard Chang. As Jean Gray is dying in her final moment, she's going through a bunch of what-if scenarios of where she went wrong. In this issue, she flashes back to the moment where she accepted the Phoenix and comes up with a much better solution here that nevertheless goes horribly <laughs> wrong. Um I continue to really like this series a lot. I love the reframing of like in continuity, what ifs, I think is just a smart, interesting thing. And Bernard Chang's art is really good on the X-Men. Louise Simonson has never been better in years. I'm I'm really enjoying this series. It may yeah. be the least Fall of X, Fall of X book, mm-hmm. but I agree with you. I'm definitely enjoying it. It feels like such a a uh, chill or I guess an easy way into these Jean Grey stories and finding ways to recontextualize her a little bit just in as a reflection of what happens to these other characters, in this case, Cyclops and Wolverine. Uh, I hope we get a little bit more out of her by the end of this, because I'm really curious where she's going to land in the larger continuity. This really did a great job for me, just setting things up and then really kind of like delivering. Uh, uh, so I'm going to spoil the shit out of this. But first off, you start with this cover that made me mad. It's Scott and Jean Grey kind of like holding each other and having a really sweet moment. Uh, but the ending is like just something out of like a fever dream that I had where you have like this amazing thing where Scott is kissing Jean Ray and then Wolverine comes and kills Scott. That was like, yeah. Uh, but then he kills himself uh, to kind of like save the day. But man, just really, just a uh, really amazing couple of seconds where I was on top of the world, but man, uh, such a cool, uh, cool idea and so well executed. Uh, I had a blast with this. 
Pete loves Fall of X. Pete loves Fall of X. Three for three. <laughs> the Dead Lucky, number nine, from Image Comics, written by Melissa Flores, art by French Carlo Magno. And this issue, our main character is reconnecting with her old flame, literally. Oh, Pyro, boy. because he has flame powers. Oh, yeah, we got <laughs> And she's trying to figure out exactly what's going on there. The fight comes back to San Francisco over the course of this issue. I know you guys love the Dead Lucky. I think at least one of you has said that's your favorite Massiverse series. What did you think about this issue? Uh, I think I'm the I've gone to bat for this series because it's the uh, it's a one of the stranger ones. I feel like sort of off to the side of the superheroics, and again dealing with like the military side, PTSD, and what that means when you go through something traumatic and move forward. We're sort of exploring the powers. The thing with the Massiverse books. It's a little bit like we were talking about earlier where there's always a move being set up down the line at the same time we're we're filling out the moves from before. This issue very much a like we're in the middle. Uh, so I want to see the I think the next issue will be a good one to really pay off a lot of stuff that's been set up. Yeah, I. I love the action in this. I love uh, uh, the team up here. Uh, kind of cool to see them working together. Then the huge fight at the, the end. Uh, yeah, and they did a great job of kind of giving us that uh, Juna's next time kind of feel. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, continues to be a blast. Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention, I believe this is 9 of 12, so we're definitely heading towards the end there, but aren't quite there as of yet. Next up, Alice Never After, number three from Boom Studios, written by Dan Panosian, art by Giorgio Spoletta and Cyril Glarum. Excuse me, Glarum and Dan Panosian. We have been following two timelines, aren't exactly the right word, but one is kind of the classic Alice in Wonderland version where now Alice is the Queen of Hearts and she's being coerced Queen into marrying one of the characters who is in Wonderland. Meanwhile, in the quote-unquote real world, Alice has been lobotomized in the previous series, uh, and we have some big things that go down here. I will just say, and, and to potentially maybe get into spoilers, I think I probably will, I think one of the things we've been talking about with the series, we loved Alice Ever After. I was personally not 100% sure what's going on and what the point of Alice Never After is. I think it becomes pretty much like 90% clear by the end of this issue. And if it goes in the direction I'm going, I think it's going, is going to be 100% horrifying in the next issue, oh, no. justify yes. the entire story, absolutely gutting. Um, and retroactively, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad slash horrified that we trusted Dan Panosian to take us this far because uh, it's awful. I agree well, with you, and that's my sort of read on it, too. In fact, when we reviewed the first issue, I think I called this as what, what was going to be happening here. Yes, that, and this is a spoiler for this issue, that she was pregnant. Uh, and impregnated by her father, Well, right? I said, I didn't say that. That's my suspicion. Yeah. I called that, and I said, and I don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> right. Uh if I remember correctly. So like it is the fact that that was revealed here, potentially, we don't know it's from an untrustworthy narrator that we get that information. So we don't really know anything. This book is just so it's a dark path. We we're walking with this. Anytime we're in the real world, it's frustration and bad things happening for the good characters and the villainous characters are smiling and succeeding. 
So it's yeah. like a very Cheshire Cat driven story. And I agree with you. I'm curious what the point is. And I hope it's not just like, look, look how fucked up this is. <laughs> well, that's what I, I'm worried about, because this is really kind of like crazy and tripped out, but also like manic and uh, like very stressful because we have a character who can't seem to win or get anywhere or uh, make any good decisions or it's just in a horrible situation that she has no control over, which, you know, is very much under, you know, uh, but I just think that I want her to win and it doesn't look like she is ever. And it's, uh, it's very sad and uh, depressing. So this kind of comic is, uh, is super dark and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping she's able to kind of pull something out here, but I'm not sure. And just to mention it, beautiful art throughout yeah. in both yeah. of these different versions of reality. Um, great book to look at, even if it's really hard content-wise to read. Tales of the Titans, number three, starring Donna Troy from DC Comics, written by Steve Orlando, art by Kath Lobo and Bob Quinn. Unlike the first two issues that seemed continuity-free, this is very much set post-Wonder Woman number one, with Donna Troy dealing with the new reality of what's going on with Wonder Woman and with Amazons being declared illegal in the United States. She's going on a mission of her own here. What do you guys think about this one? I mean, this is like holy walking action movie. This is like so intense and fun and hilarious. The whole like whistling and her flying horse stumps out a bad dude and she's got like one liners and shit. Uh, yeah, this is just like uh, really kind of a fun action movie that I'm having a blast with. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I love the art style. I like how fast paced it is. Uh, you can really get a bang for your buck in this and uh, some really cool covers. Uh, yeah, I thought the art was good. Uh, Donna Troy takes on like an M. Bison. Yeah. From Street Fighter. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, boss battle. 100%. Yeah. Huge boss battle here. Uh, That's the I don't thing know what... uh, people don't realize is like when you're fighting somebody and they got nice dress shoes on, like a great end move is just stopping them on the feet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Step those toes. I don't really get understand the larger political implications slash photojournalistic ideas here and what they mean. But uh, I thought the, the reveal at the end was interesting. Blade, number three from Marvel, written by Brian Hill. Blade. Blade. Hard by Elena Casagrande and Valentina Pinti, talking about big action movie, action movie, excuse me, as we've been talking about with the past two issues of this book. It was a big action movie version of Blade. Big explosions, big blood, big sword fights. Pete, blood. Yeah, this is great. I mean... Holy, this is the uh, blood you've been up. waiting for, yeah. the day of blood. Holy fucked up bad guys. I mean, that guy's like burning people's eyes out and then sets them on fire. I mean, holy shit, that's a, that's a fucked up move. But, man, I love the uh, last page reveal, love all the action, love what this is setting up, cool Lucifer story, uh, great art, more please, thank you. Yeah, you love a train, right? And we get our bad guys on a sneaky little train that never stops. Uh, Classic Snowpiercer situation. Very Snowpiercer situation here. Uh, Blade setting up to be someone like, oh, here we go again. This uh, great evil. I got to fight it. Everyone's annoying but around me. 
but he barely he pulls it out here. I'm actually surprised there's very little vampire stuff here, and it's much larger mythology that we're dealing with. The Schlub, number two from Image Comics, written by Ryan Stegman and Kenny Porter, art by Tyrell Cannon. This is about a dentist who switches bodies with a Superman-type character. DDS. DDS, <laughs> Superman-type character. And uh, what happens there, they continue to deal with this new status quo in this issue. I know I was a little iffy on the humor in the first issue, but how do you guys feel about issue number two? Yeah, I agree with what you're hinting at here. I feel like this does a gr- better job of like uh, kind of finding a flow and uh, uh, kind of like through line and stuff like that. So, or at least maybe I'm used to the storytelling, what's happening in this one. But yeah, I feel like this definitely improved from the first issue. I like the coffee bit. Um, so I feel like this is kind of really uh, trucking along. So I'm enjoying this. And uh, a shout out to Jordan D. White. What? I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious what the nice. I'm curious what the po- sort of point of it is. Like, I want a little bit more sort of underpinning direction of like, and the because I I think what is going to happen is the the guy who is the dentist is going to be like I'm going to keep this body, and so I want it to be Ooh. more than that being the central animating plot of the story. Yeah, I agree. I like the art quite a bit. The designs of the characters are very fun and exaggerated. Um, I like some of the comedy moves here, but I wish I wish it would go bigger and wilder. Um, yeah. That, that's my main take. Black Hammer, the end, number two, from Dark Horse Comics, written by Jeff Lemire, art by Malachi Ward. In this issue, a bunch of our multiversal heroes are mustering the forces to fight anti-God. Meanwhile, on the quote-unquote real Earth, we are getting a bunch of characters who are just like, not interested in that. They don't want to do that stuff. Um, But what it starts to look like for this issue is maybe the next generation is going to pick up the mantle of heroism potentially fight against this big fat. At least that's my suspicion based off of this. This mm-hmm. book continues to be very good. Yeah, yeah. I love the art. I also really love the first panel. It's so beautiful. Love the art style as a whole. Um, and also the last panel is really beautiful as well. This is getting exciting. I really like what we're kind of playing with here. And I'm very excited for the next issue. They do a great job of getting you excited for more. I also am a, I love the inspector guy. And uh, every time he's on Inspector panel, and sector? That's right. Fun stuff. I, I agree. Like, I, I think this book, and I don't know if this is true, but it reminds me of uh, like a team of characters I would have created when I was a kid mm-hmm. where it feels like they're right next door to heroes. I love uh, their names are funny. And like the thing you would think of if you're a kid who loves comics and the fact that the overarching storyline is actually big stakesy sort of written as an adult going back to characters you created as a kid. I feel like I'm laying this all on Jeff Lemire and maybe that's not the origin of this story, but I really like that tone to it. I like, like Alex, uh, like you said, about this being like a, a youth movement book. Uh, the the fact the that future. this is they're the future. Uh, the fact that this is ending is a little sad. Real quick, Pete, I'd love to get your opinion on this one. What do you think is better, Justin's Jeff Lemire fan fiction or my James Tide of the Fourth Tate Bromble fan fiction? Ooh, mm. I gotta go with JT Sizz on this one. What? Oh, oh man, nice. Gotcha. 
point, but very light fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Green Arrow number four from DC Comics, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Sean Isaacs. In this issue, Green Arrow is trapped to the far future, or is he? As he what? continues to tangle with Parallax the evil version of Harold Jordan. Meanwhile, back on the regular Earth, Black Canary and Roy, I don't know, one of those Arrow guys, Roy are trying to figure out where everybody is. So a bunch of stuff going on here. Did this one hit the mark or did it uh, miss don't. the bullseye? Oh, wow, boy. nice, 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 nice. We get the Legion, let's not forget, just bouncing around in here as well in this large, sort of out-of-character time travel uh, arc for Green Arrow. I I have been enjoying this. I don't. The Arrowverse is not something. I wish it was a TV show or something that oh, really got into this. On, that would be great. That would be smart. Uh, but I I'm not super familiar with it, so I've been enjoying this. I like the Green Arrow parallax stuff. Yeah, I like the uh, Green Arrow going up against Parallax in this. This is a cool story. It's got some classic, awesome DC art style, which is very enjoyable. I also think this is a good jumping on point here, even though it's number four. Uh, Love the last panel reveal, and the yellow cover is cool and hilarious. Realm of X, number two from Marvel, written by Torin Grumbach, art by Diogenes Neves. This is following a bunch of X-Men characters who are trapped in Vanaheim, trying to fill a prophecy while getting back their teammate Curse from Saturnine, the White Queen, Shades of Chronicles of Narnia, Shades yes. of other fantasy books as well. Justin, I know you're a big fan of the first issue. What do you think about issue number two? Continue yeah, to love this. We got Typhoid Mary potentially cheating on Wilson Fisk himself. Oh! Yikes. There will be a price to be paid. More, more like here. cucked pin. What? Oh. <laughs> oh. oh, man. Marvel, make that happen. Maybe the new Daredevil series is uh, can explore that idea. Uh, but I really like this. It's one of the wilder Fall of X books uh, in a world of wild Fall of X books. But this is... A strange world with uh, interesting characters put together with a nice underlying narrative and philosophy beneath it. Pete? Uh, I like the action. The fighting is fun. The art is great. The Mary maybe uh, getting a love connection was kind of interesting. Ooh, what are you, a tabloid writer? (laughs) Yeah. Mary maybe. Maybe. Okay, that's a medium on P for this one. <laughs> yeah. That's a 3.5 out of 4. Okay, I, I, that's what I was waiting for. New Burn number 11 from Image Comics, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Jacob Phillips. In this issue, New Burn is making some big moves to secure his place in the New York underworld. Um, another perfect issue of this book, I'd say, I guess. <laughs> Chip Zdarsky is doing a lot of books right now, but this feels sure the is. one that... He- He's most meticulous about moving forward. This feels like sort of high on his like books he's excited about doing. And it sort of suffuses through the whole story. Like it's plotted out like perfectly. Like I don't know what the end point is. It feels like Newburn's in a bad situation all the time, but he's somehow like, I'll figure this out. And that's hard. Yeah, I mean, this continues to be great. Love the art style. This comic rocks. Uh, I also love the black and white backup as well. Yeah. The Hollywood Special, number two from IDW, written by Jeremy Lambert, art by Claire Rowe. 
This is following a washed-up actress who is going on a train tour, ends up in a mining town where there's been a horrific collapse. It leads not just to multiple deaths, but also to her maybe hallucinating a bunch of terrible things that are going on as she reveals some repressed trauma from her past. Um, man, I I love this book. I really like the first issue. Really like the second issue as well, and it gets even wilder and weirder here. The designs and layouts that Claire Rowe puts throughout the book start to feel like a fever dream the more you read it, and I think that's what it's supposed to feel like, so it channels that very well. This lady likes to drink. I'll tell you that much. Who doesn't? Oh, man. That drinking montage that's from her POV was one of the wilder things that I think I saw in comics this month, year, maybe. Yeah. Wow. Agreed. It was really cool. And the I like that we sort of finally progressed the story into the more horrifying part for the next issue. So very cool. Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm, you know, just a missing Riverdale, but this kind of uh, idea that maybe if you die and get to go to a diner seems like a fucking sweet thing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, mm. especially if you can eat for free. I mean, it sounds like a perfect scenario. But, uh, yeah, we have kind of the main character uh, uh, falling and, uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden is now in a diner with her name on everything. I mean, oh, that just sounds amazing. But... Uh, I think this continues to be a very interesting story with a lot of twists and turns, and I'm enjoying it, and the tripped-out art style is pretty fucking intense, man. There you go. The Immortal Thor, number two from Marvel, written by Al Ewing, art by Martin Coquello. This is following Thor as he fights against the Uthgard Thor, who is the original Thor, or the original idea of Thor. Turns out there's multiple levels of gods out there, and they're causing mm. some big, big trouble. Something that Loki wants to help Thor? Question mark. Work Ooh, out. Yeah, this Loki, can you trust? Can't trust. Great. If you love eyeball plucking out scenes, oh, you got a good one in here. You took it. You, you took it away from me. Oh, you were going to say you love that? Yeah, I mean, it's the old, uh, I'd like to trade my eyeball in for knowledge move. I mean, mm, you know, how yeah. many times have we seen it? You know what I mean? But I know I gave you that. I gave you my right eye, Pete, and I don't feel any more knowledgeable. Where's the knowledge you Dude, promised? I, uh, it's there, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. It's not my fault. No. You can't absorb information. You just from... mailed me four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics from the yeah. mid-90s. Maybe it's reread not, them. It's all It's not there. knowledge. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not new knowledge. I learned how to use the nunchakus from those issues, so maybe you should open up your Oh, thanks. Eyes, your pronunciation of nunchucks is perfect. That's all the knowledge. <laughs> well, why don't we move on to a title that maybe used some of that old knowledge, Void Rivals, number four from Image Comics, written by Robert Kirkman, art by Lorenzo DiFelici. This is part of the Energon universe which is connecting the Transformers and eventually the G.I. Joes, as well as two new races who look exactly the same but are at war. Here we're getting them returning to one of their home planets. Things get messed up even farther. We also basically have the title of the book in here, but also we get a random classic Robert Kirkman, oh, by the way, this is happening over here scene, that involves yeah. a big, bad Transformers villain who shows up. Yes. Um, what do you guys think about this? I'm loving this, man. This is so, this is really getting good. Uh, I love that uh, they kind of uh, 
we get maybe a budding love story as well. I mean, these two people who are at odds get thrown in the same jail cell. Oh, only love can come out of that jail cell. But, yeah, yeah. I, I also very much enjoyed the shout-out to the Transformers movie we got in here. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is really hitting for me. I'm having a great time. There's a shout-out to just all, all Transformers because they're in here. This is char- these are characters. So that's nice. Yeah, but those characters were specifically from the Transformers movie. Was uh, that, there it is. So I don't actually know. So the character who shows up here, is that Shockwave? Is that who it is? Nope. Cybertron? Nope. Isn't the that one. his name? <laughs> I believe the character who shows up here is called Shockwave, and he's I the one who Transformers cartoon who killed Megatron and... Yeah took over, like, destroyed the Autobots. So the implication is, like, they're building up to some big fight going on here. Yeah. Uh, but I do like this sort of our two characters who are pitted against each other and sort of continually uh, screwing over each other and very much sets up. That's not Shockwave, dude. We're not friends. Not we're not Shockwave. enemies. I don't remember what it's called. I'll look it up. You. We're not friends. We're not enemies. We're rivals, which I think uh, got it. Uh, but I do like there's some information given at the end of the book, and the art for this is really nice. It has a nice tone that strikes a little nostalgia while still being dynamic and modern. He's the guy who's like when you, they go to Cybertron, he's kind of like the. the That's why I said Cybertron. Yeah, yeah, but he he's not Cybertron. He was the kind of guy who was running the kind of like teleportation thing from Cybertron. I can't remember. Yeah, uh, teleport shock teleportron. It is Shockwave. Oh, it's, it's a different version of... Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is Shockwave. Wow. Who's the real Transformers fan well, now? Well, well, well. Yeah. I mean, it's not... I don't want to get into a Well, Alex, you really are more than meets the eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Transform and roll out is the other thing that I know. Maleficent, number five from Dynamite by Sue Lee. Rolls this off is the tongue. Maleficent. Uh, this is, this book is great and it's beautiful. Every issue seems like a done in one story, except it's this building confrontation with Maleficent. And here we get a wizard battle that felt right out wizard of uh, was it Sword of the Stone, the one where oh yeah 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 uh, uh, Arthur Merlin yeah Merlin and fights. Oh my god, I'm blanking on what her name is, but like they have that battle where they keep changing into different creatures. Yes. Yeah. It's great. That stuff. Uh this is awesome and it looks gorgeous. You guys take it away. Yeah. Pete, I mean, this is your read. Yeah, this is I fucking loved every single panel on this. I the art is super type on us in such a legendary way. I also love the uh, the fact that they're letting the art shine and not having as many words on this, the fight sequences are just so awesome. I mean, they do such a great job of building uh, towards this giant wizard battle. Uh, this comic continues to be absolutely badass. Uh, when we first kind of started reading this comic, I couldn't believe we were talking about this comic, and now I can't get enough of it. What a turnabout. It's really gone to Pete's cortex. Like, this is in his finding its way to his heart. Honestly, yeah. it's like an infection, and I'm worried for him. I want to get him some on some medication for it. Never. Because this is really like a thorny uh, tendril curling around his neck and body. I also really like it. It does take you back to classic Disney movies when they used to have some real scary stuff. Yeah, you didn't think. building stuff. 
And that's what this book is. Agree. The Avengers, number five from Marvel, written by Jed McKay, art by Ivan Fiorello. In this issue, the Avengers are fighting back against the first of their trials, I believe, as Sam Wilson and Black Panther try to stop a suicidal city from killing itself, um, while a bunch of other characters. Are you, Alex, are you not worried more about the Ashen Combine? Oh, I, I feel do, like you're not worried no, no, about the I, Ashen I Combine. love, I love, like, I've been an Ashen Combine guy from back in the day. Like, so don't yeah. even get me started on Ashen Combine. Or the Ennui, that's another character that, like, I remember oh. reading the Ennui back in the day when I was a kid in Avengers, and I was like, I love the Ennui. This is- I didn't, sorry, I, I was calling you out, but I didn't realize you were wearing an Ashen Combine uh, t-shirt. Uh, yeah, but that's- <laughs> I'm actually wearing an Ashen Combine turbine Uh, Yeah, this is fun. Giant battle. Love it. Um, Kill for mother is such a fucking creepy battle cry, but uh, it works well here. Um, Yeah, that's what I want Superman to say more often. (laughs) Some real badass moments in this. Kill for mother. (laughs) Uh, I like the hell no at the end. Uh, Very enjoyable. Yeah, I think uh, Jed McKay, one of my favorite writers at Marvel, like really uh, introducing some big Black Order style villains, but more on the God side of that, that the Avengers truly feel like they can't win against. And I like the way the stakes keep pressing them down. And in this issue, it's like, we're going to win. And I'm very much looking forward to see how that happens next issue. These villains, while being sort of like, uh, don't feel like they have a lot of legs as villains in the Avengers universe. I like that they're driven by sort of larger ideas. Uh, they're fun, visually different, and scary. Last but not least, Captara, Universal Truths, number two from Image Comics, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Kagan McLeod. Last issue, I described this complimentarily as a extremely gay Masters of the Universe, and that's what it continues to be in this issue in yeah. an absolutely delightful way. This is like Masters of the Universe filtered through Bad Magazine, but also emotional at the same time, so perfectly in Chip Zdarsky's wheelhouse. And also uh, channels that cartoon from the 80s where if any time a teen got wet, he turned into a car. As the old man in this issue uh, slowly turns into a catapult. I think that show is called Teen Wheels, I want to say. And made no sense because it's hard to avoid water. Yeah, yeah. This is just kind of a real uh, tripped up, fucked up uh, episode of He-Man in a crazy kind of creative, cool way. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) Oh, boy. Wow. Uh, Uh, All right. Let's kick it off with our host (laughs) slowly running out of gas. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show and all the shows, we do patreon.com slash comic book club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. to Facebook and YouTube. Come hang out. We would love to chat with you about comic books, Apple, Spotify, Android, or the app of your choice to subscribe, listen, and follow the show at comic book live on Twitter slash X comic book club live on Instagram and TikTok. comic book club live.com for this podcast and many more until next time. We'll see you at the comic book club.
Jangan nanti 